This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Ooh, we're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Long before August Strindberg was a famous actor and playwright, he was a rebellious young man working at the National Library of Sweden. One night in the 1870s, young August planned to break into the library after hours. After August's shift, he waited until the library's doors had closed for the day. Once the coast was clear, he snuck back into the building with a curious friend in tow. They had come to see the book. They crept into the private collection and spotted the restricted volume. It took both of the men to heft the tome onto a reading table. Half as tall as a man and just as heavy, the volume was a behemoth wrapped in white leather. Striking a match, August leaned over the book and opened it. He leafed through it, turning giant pages covered in precise, neat calligraphy. As he turned, August Friend noticed that the book was missing pages. The man wondered aloud what secrets might lay in those lost passages. August stopped when he came to two intricate illustrations. On the left-hand side was a golden city, its towers and turrets reaching up to heaven itself. It was an image of holy Jerusalem, meant to be a pristine temple to God. But on the right, something disturbing stared back at them. A ghoulish figure crouched on the page. It had a human's body, but its fingers and toes ended in large, bloody claws. A pair of red horns sat atop its green head, and a forked tongue flicked out between its fangs. August turned to his companion with a knowing smile. He said, I've heard that this is a portrait of the author. A piece of him lives within the pages of this book. So, my friend, what do you think of the Devil's Bible? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. 
But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on the Codex Gigas. The Codex is the largest illuminated manuscript ever created. It's a literary curiosity filled with Bible passages, monastery records, and even spells and enchantments. This week, we'll find out more about the turbulent history of the Codex Gigas and dive deeper into the mysteries that surround this 800-year-old tome. There are many stories about the Codex, concerning everything from the book-driving men mad to what really happened to its roughly 10 missing pages. Next week, we'll discuss some theories as to how the Codex came to be and why it was created. While it's not known who wrote the book, some believe the author had some diabolical help. And when it comes to the Codex, many say that the portrait is not the only thing the devil left behind. The massive Codex Gigas is aptly named. Its title translates in English to The Giant Book. But over the years, it's also been nicknamed The Black Book and The Devil's Bible. Standing over 30 inches tall and weighing 165 pounds, the Codex is the largest medieval illuminated manuscript to survive to the modern age. The book is a well-preserved work of art. It's bound in wooden boards wrapped in tanned white leather. Each of the four corners of the front cover is capped by an intricate metal fitting depicting two griffins. Matching fittings also crown the back cover's four corners. And a final ninth metal fitting rests in the very center of the front cover. Inside, the Codex Giga's 620 pages are made of vellum, a type of fine parchment created from processed animal skin. But beyond its size, the book is quite unique among medieval manuscripts. The Codex contains the largest illustration of the devil from any Bibles of that time. The writing of the Codex Gigas has been narrowed down to some time between 1204 and 1230 CE in the Kingdom of Bohemia, located in what is now the Czech Republic. While the author is unknown, it's generally accepted that the entire massive book was written by one person. This alone is exceedingly unusual. Commonly, medieval manuscripts would be completed by a team of scribes and illustrators all working together. This was done to speed up the process of creating books. Illuminated manuscripts, even with a whole unit working on them, could take years to complete. And centuries later, researchers can often tell which scribe worked on what section due to the differences in handwriting or style. But that's not the case with the Codex Gigas. The script is uniform throughout the volume, indicating every page was composed by the same scribe. 
This means that one person worked tirelessly to write and illustrate the codex with no other assistance. According to the National Library of Sweden, who currently houses the book, if one person were to work day and night to complete the Codex Gigas, it would take them five years. Allowing for the responsibilities of a normal life, the library has calculated that the Codex Gigas took 20 to 30 years to finish. Even more striking, the Codex's pages are inscribed with a precise script called Carolingian Minuscule. Carolingian minuscule fell out of popular use in the early 1100s, 100 years before the Codex was created. Whoever wrote the Codex purposely chose an obscure, unpopular script with which to compose their masterpiece. Perhaps it was a choice of preference, and the scribes simply preferred Carolingian minuscule. Or maybe the writing style was intentional. Perhaps instead, the writer meant to veil their words and mask their meaning. The book contains a great variety of texts, chief among them the Old and New Testaments. There is also a 20-volume encyclopedia, alchemical formulas, and a few incantations. Most of it is written in Latin, although there are pages that contain Hebrew, Greek, and Slavic alphabets. This indicates that the author of the Codex may have spoken multiple languages, to write the encyclopedia, they also would have had to amass an extensive amount of knowledge on wildly varying subjects. In short, this scribe was brilliant. The most remarkable feature of the Codex are the two full-page illustrations near the center. On the left is the holy city of Jerusalem, golden and shining. On the right is the devil, squatting with his clawed hands raised threatening the reader. Beyond the two distinctive paintings, there's something else that's strange about this section of the Codex. A black spot has taken root in the book, and its center is the portrait of the devil. The vellum in this area has darkened with age, causing shadows to appear on the paper. But these spots only affect the pages directly before and after the devil's likeness. The darkened pages contain text that is perverse for a Bible. Pagan spells, including instructions for exercising demons and casting out evil. So the author of the Codex Gigas worked tirelessly, most likely for their entire lifetime, to write a book of both pagan and Christian beliefs in an outdated script. While we know the what, we don't know the why. Normally, such a book would be dedicated to God, but for some reason, the author made the focal point a large, threatening illustration of the devil. Not exactly artwork praising God. The Codex is a rabbit hole, with each sinister detail leading the reader further down. And since it first appeared in the 1200 CE, the Codex has traveled all across Europe, leaving a trail of misfortune in its wake. Though the Codex was created between 1204 and 1230 CE, its first recorded appearance wasn't until 1295 CE. The manuscript's primary owners were the monks of the Podlajice Monastery in the Kingdom of Bohemia near Prague. But it's unlikely the Codex was created there, as the monastery was too poor and small to support the creation of such expensive manuscripts. In fact, 
no one quite knows how the Codex ended up at Podlegitsa. Their monastery didn't make it and couldn't have afforded to buy it. Perhaps it was a gift from another monastery or from the scribe himself. What we do know is that in 1295, Podlegitsa traded the Codex to another nearby monastery in the town of Sedlets. When this monastery was founded, their abbot Henry consecrated the ground with blessed earth. He brought it back from Golgotha, the hill where Jesus was crucified. People flocked to Sedlets, hoping to be buried in such a holy place. Thousands were interred at the church until there were so many bodies that the monks had to build a separate crypt. When that wasn't enough, they came up with a more inventive way to inter the dead. Today, the Sedlets Abbey is famously known for its macabre chapel, the Sedlets Ossuary. Thousands of skeletons in artful arrangements decorate the chapel. There is a chandelier, a crucifix, and a coat of arms, all made out of human bones. Though the Codex only lived in Sedlets for a short time, it made its mark. Perhaps the odd beauty of the Codex Gigas later inspired the morbid decoration of the chapel. But in 1295, the same year it received the Codex, Sedlets Abbey sold it to the Benedictine Order of Brzezivno, a monastery in Prague. It's not known exactly why, but perhaps the funds were later used to build Sedlets's crypt. For almost 300 years, the Codex Gigas was the property of the Brzezivnov monks, until in 1594, it caught the eye of a new admirer. Coming up, we'll discover how the Codex Gigas affected the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. Now, back to the story. By 1594, the Codex Gigas was almost 400 years old. It was being held by the Brzezivnov monks when Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II first heard about it. When Rudolf was 13, the famous seer Nostradamus predicted the death of Rudolf's father and foresaw his ascent to the throne at a young age. This prophecy came true, and Rudolf began his rule at the age of 24. Since that fateful prediction, Rudolf developed an obsession with magic and the occult. Now 42, Rudolf was captivated by one book in particular, the Devil's Bible. He was especially intrigued when he heard the legend of the Codex's creation. As the story goes, there was once a monk named Herman. When he joined his order, he dedicated himself to the rule of Saint Benedict. As a Benedictine monk, Herman took vows of stability, conversion, and obedience. He swore to commit to his monastery and God as a stable member of the clergy. He swore to continually convert himself, to strive to live his life in accordance with God's wishes. And finally, he swore to obey and listen to the abbot of the monastery, who had final say over all earthly matters. These three concepts are the bedrock of the rule of Saint Benedict, and flouting them are grounds for punishment, expulsion from the order, or worse. Herman dedicated himself to God at a small monastery in the Kingdom of Bohemia. There he trained as a scribe and became talented at both calligraphy and illustration. Herman saw his artistic prowess as a gift from God. He wrote illuminated manuscripts as a way of honoring his creator. 
Over the years, his beautiful books brought the monastery acclaim. Herman was living happily following his vows and even creating great works of art. But life as a monk was cut drastically short when he committed a terrible offense. Though it's not known exactly what Herman's transgression was, the sin was taken extremely seriously. Whatever he did, he broke one of the vows of the rule of St. Benedict, and the nature of his terrible betrayal was reflected in his punishment. The abbot of the monastery sentenced Herman to immurement. Herman would be walled up in a chamber while still alive and be left to slowly starve to death. As the date of Herman's final punishment approached, he came up with an idea. He'd use his writing talents as a bargaining chip and offer a trade to the abbot. The night before Herman was to be sealed in the chamber, he begged for an audience with the monastery superiors. He asked if he could leverage his talent one last time and create a codex so extraordinary it would buy his freedom. The abbot paused to think. In his years leading the abbey, he always strived to be a man of his word. If he sentenced Herman to immurement, he should make sure the punishment was carried out. But Herman was a brilliant scribe. His breathtaking manuscripts brought pilgrims to their small monastery, and pilgrims brought donations. So the abbot agreed to his deal. But before Herman could leave, <coughs> the abbot cleared his throat. He had one condition. He said, to evade your sentence, this must be an extraordinary book. You will create a text that holds all the knowledge in the known world. It will be the largest book ever created, and you must complete it before dawn touches the horizon. Herman was dumbfounded. The largest book in the world in a single night? It would be impossible. But he saw the resolve in the abbot's eyes and knew there would be no use arguing with him. This great work was his only chance to save his life. Herman was forced to agree. Later that night, Herman was growing despondent. He'd worked in his chamber for hours, but he'd made no headway. It was almost midnight, and yet Herman had barely finished the title page. The sheets of vellum he chose for the book were enormous. They were three feet tall and a foot and a half wide, and they were painfully white and empty. While he worked, Herman prayed. He asked God to make his writing expedient and precise, but God hadn't answered. So, for the very first time in his life, Herman turned his attention in another direction. Instead of sending his thoughts upwards to heaven, his desperation made his prayers heavy as stones, and they sank downwards to hell. Herman thought, please, if there is anyone at all listening, please help me. I'll do anything. I don't want to die. The chamber began to shake. A thick cloud of black smoke filled the room, choking Herman. Through the haze, a fire appeared in the cold grate, burning with odd hues of blue and green. As the air cleared, a terrible voice spoke. It said, It seems your prayers finally reached a sympathetic ear, Herman. 
all that hard work denying yourself pleasures. But when the time came, your lord abandoned you. Don't worry, I'm here to offer my assistance. Herman turned. A tall figure stood in a darkened corner of the chamber. It stepped into the light, and Herman recoiled. It wasn't a man. It was a monster, with a face covered in green scales and fingers ending in long, hooked claws. Twin tongues flicked out of its mouth, tasting the air in the damp cell. A pair of horns grew from its head, painted red with the blood of the damned. The devil had heard Herman's prayers. Herman stepped back as the devil approached the book. The devil looked at the empty sheets of vellum and the one partially completed title page. He took stock of the pots of multicolored inks that covered Herman's work table. He noted the growing pile of broken quills on the ground. The devil said, you are doomed, Herman. You are a mere mortal. You cannot finish before the night is through. But I can help you, Herman. I only ask one thing in return, your soul. The devil had found Herman in his darkest moment, and Herman couldn't find the will to refuse his offer. He agreed that if the devil finished the book for him, he could take Herman's soul. The devil placed one of his long, sharp claws on the center of a piece of vellum. Dark ink flowed from his talon, twisting itself into letters and words. The writing spread across all the pages that littered the chamber, covering every inch of them. The devil gathered the pages into a stack. A dark thread appeared and quickly bound the pages together, stitching in midair as if guided by an unseen seamstress. With a final stitch, the Codex Gigas was finished. The manuscript lay open on Herman's simple table. Where the devil had touched it, there was now a frightening vision, a portrait of the Prince of Hell, just as he had appeared to Herman. The devil said, here, a portrait of the author. Your task is done, Herman. Come morning, you will be free. Another blinding cloud of smoke and ash filled the room. When it cleared, the devil was gone, and Herman was alone with the book. At dawn, the abbot came to collect Herman for his immurement. The task he had set was impossible, and he was sure Herman wouldn't have gotten far. So he was shocked to discover an enormous book, more beautiful than any he had ever seen. To the abbot, it seemed Herman was chosen by God, so he happily absolved Herman from his punishment. As Herman breathed a sigh of relief, a small thought tickled the back of his brain. What if he had made the wrong choice? As the days passed, that small thought grew larger and larger. Finally, Herman was forced to confront what he'd done. He had saved his mortal life, but doomed his immortal soul to eternal fire. Days after the terrible night of the Codex's inception, Herman found himself praying once again. But this time, he decided to pray to the Virgin Mary. She was known to be more receptive to sinners than her son, and he hoped she would take pity on him. 
Herman's prayer had barely passed his lips before a vision appeared to him. It was Mary, wearing a white veil and surrounded by a brilliant, warm light. She explained that she had been watching him. She knew that desperation had driven Herman to the agreement he made. And Mary said she could see there was true remorse in his heart. She would save him from his deal with the devil. Tears sprang to Herman's eyes. He promised he would change his ways. He'd leave the monastery and become a hermit, devoted solely to the Virgin Mary. He sobbed as he reached for Mary's hand. But just inches away, his arms suddenly fell. His throat tightened and a sharp pain bloomed in his chest. As Herman watched, Mary's face darkened, turning green and scaly. Her tongue split into two, and a pair of red horns sprouted from her head. Her veil fell away to reveal the devil. The devil said, trying to back out of our agreement? This is a covenant that can't be broken. I delivered my end, and now it's time for you to pay. Herman sank to his knees. The last thing he saw before he died were the devil's black eyes laughing at him. Rudolph was enraptured by the legend surrounding the book and vowed he must possess the codex. When he visited the monastery that held the mysterious object, he asked them to loan it to him. But Rudolph had no intention of returning the Devil's Bible. From the moment the Codex entered his possession, Rudolph was a changed man. He grew unsure of himself, letting anxiety get the better of his decision-making. He stopped trusting his advisors and was quick to dismiss them from his castle. Rudolph sank into bouts of what his royal doctors called melancholia. During these times, he would lose interest in affairs of state or his imperial duties. These depressive episodes were offset by periods of mania, where Rudolph withdrew deeper into his occult books. Some say of his entire collection, he was fascinated by the Codex Gigas Devil's Portrait most of all. Eventually, Rudolph became extremely paranoid. He heard voices telling him that his advisors and members of the royal court were lying to him. The voices convinced him that he and everyone in his castle were possessed by demons. By 1611, 59-year-old Rudolf was no longer able to separate reality from his paranoia. Among other factors, his worsening mental state forced the royal court to take away some of his control. While he still held the position of Holy Roman Emperor, he had little authority even over his home kingdom of Bohemia. Because Rudolf was losing his grasp on reality, the court was forced to look towards a successor. Rudolf had not produced an heir, so they decided his younger brother Matthias would ascend to the throne. Rudolf disliked Matthias because he had openly campaigned to usurp the throne. Now that the court had declared Rudolf would have to abdicate in favor of Matthias, their animosity flared into open hostility. Rudolf swore he would never let his brother take his crown. Rudolf hired a team of mercenaries to secure Bohemia before Matthias could take over. Instead, 
these men burned and pillaged their way across the countryside, laying waste to the kingdom. Rudolf's rebellion was a disaster. He was stripped of all remaining power and forced to watch as his detested brother took the throne. Rudolf died bewildered and afraid just months later in 1612. The power of the Codex may have influenced Rudolf's mental deterioration. He had an infatuation with demonic imagery, and whether it was a supernatural object or just a rare book, this played into his own paranoia. But his specific obsession with the Codex might have shaped his fear that the devil had taken up residence in his own royal court. Unfortunately, this wouldn't be the last time the Codex drove someone to madness. Next, we'll follow the Codex on its journey to its new home in Sweden. Now back to the story. After the unceremonious end of Emperor Rudolf II's rule in 1612, the Codex Gigas hibernated once more. It remained in the palace in Prague for another 36 years before being seized by Swedish forces in 1648 as spoils of the Thirty Years' War. The Swedes hoped to buttress their own royal collection in Stockholm with beautiful and rare books from the Holy Roman Empire. The Codex was a famous volume and sure to be a crown jewel of the royal castle. On May 7, 1697, a fire broke out near the hollow state at Castle Tria Krunor. It quickly spread to the royal library where the Codex Gigas was housed. While the Swedish castle Tria Krunor burned, the staff inside rushed to rescue the invaluable books held in the library. A number of them banded together to lift the 165-pound Codex Gigas and carry it to a high window. An eyewitness outside described seeing the castle staff heave the codex from the window, sending the book tumbling down towards the ground below. But in the panic, the people running in the street couldn't hear the shouts of warning coming from the castle. The codex landed squarely on a man running below the library window, crushing him. As the fire raged and more books came flying from the window above, the codex began to move. Though injured, the man it struck survived the impact. He hefted the book off of him and crawled through the rushing crowd to safety. The Codex didn't fare much better than its newest victim. The impact of the fall shattered the wooden boards that acted as its front and back covers. The binding was destroyed and the book was falling apart. Servants from the castle ran down to the street to salvage the remains of the Codex. They dragged it through the streets of Stockholm, desperate to get it clear from the burning library. It's thought that this was the moment 10 to 12 pages went missing from the Codex. But there's no definitive account stating that pages were left behind during the rescue from the fire. And this has given rise to another theory, that the missing pages were deliberately taken out. The Codex contains a number of alchemical formulas and mystical incantations. Next to works of scripture are pagan beliefs and magic spells. There are recipes to brew potions preventing thievery and invocations to cast out demons. 
but the most powerful ritual in the book is located right next to its infamous Devil's Portrait. The pages directly after the disturbing illustration hold instructions for an exorcism meant to free those possessed by spirits. It's very unusual that these texts would be included alongside biblical works as they have roots in pagan traditions. But the spells that are within the Codex are fairly benign. Perhaps this is because any malicious incantations were intentionally removed. If this is the case, whatever was excised must have been more demonic than the ghastly illustration of the devil that was left in the book. With that in mind, who knows what evil thoughts were written on the missing pages. But even after the loss of the ten pages, the Codex continued to have an ill effect on those who encountered it. After Castle Tria Krunor burned to the ground, the modern Stockholm Palace was built atop the ashes. The Codex Gigas and the other surviving books from the Royal Library were housed in this new building. In the years following the fire, the book took on the role of a curiosity, a literary marvel of the library's collection. But if the stories are to be believed, it was the source of yet another misfortune in the 1850s. In 1858, a new tale about the Codex Gigas appeared in a Swedish book called Tokroliga Anecdoter. This title translates to hilarious anecdotes or preposterous anecdotes. The story centers on an unnamed caretaker at the Swedish National Library in Stockholm Palace. One night, the caretaker fell asleep while on duty. When he awoke, he found himself in a dilemma. For some reason, his keys no longer worked in any of the doors. No matter which lock he tried, they wouldn't turn. He was trapped in the library. Determined to find a way out, the caretaker began trying windows one at a time. He thought he was bound to find one that hadn't been sealed. But with each failure, he grew more desperate to escape. Alone in the darkened bookstacks, the caretaker began to think his eyes were playing tricks on him. Each time he turned his head, he could swear there was movement just at the edge of his vision. But when he went to go check, there was nothing there. The more doors the caretaker tried, the more desperate he felt. Dread crept down his spine, settling like a stone in the pit of his stomach. The very books that lined the walls seemed to breathe, expanding and contracting before his eyes. He jumped when the first book fell to the floor. It sounded like cannon fire in the tense stillness of the library. Another book fell, and another. The caretaker turned to the bookshelf closest to the front windows of the library. By the light of the full moon, the rest of the books were wriggling and writhing on the shelves, shaking themselves free. As the caretaker watched, dumbfounded and afraid, books began to drift towards the ceiling as if held by unseen hands. Dozens of them lifted upwards, floating in a rough circle above the main library hall. The books hung in the air for just a moment. Then, as one, they began to spin. The books whirled around the library hall, dancing around each other. 
The caretaker fell to his knees in fear as the books twirled faster and faster. In the midst of the dance, one monstrous book rose into the air. The Codex Gigas, all 165 pounds of it, was floating like a feather. It too began to twist and turn, the other books swirling around their leader. The Devil's Bible was the epicenter of the book's terrible dance. And as the caretaker watched, it glided towards him. The next morning, the staff unlocked the doors to find a pristine library, just as they had left it the night before. The only thing out of the ordinary was the evening caretaker. He was found cowering under a table, muttering gibberish to himself. When the workers tried to ask him what happened, he could barely answer. The caretaker had lost his senses. His talk of dancing books and the white Bible made it clear. His nights spent locked in the library had driven him insane. In the years following the 1858 appearance of the caretaker's story, the Codex Gigas has been relatively silent. In 1878, it was relocated along with the entire Swedish National Library collection. Apart from a few months in 2007, during which the Codex was on loan to Prague, it has remained in the modern National Library of Sweden in Humlegården Park. And after 800 years of traversing Europe, the Codex finally has a permanent home. Many of the mysteries surrounding the Codex Gigas are difficult to investigate due to the age of the book. But it had to come from somewhere. There are two major theories on the origin of the Codex Gigas. First, there is the story of Hermann the Monk. This legend has followed the Codex for centuries, but does that mean it's true? While closely analyzing the Codex, researchers have made a shocking discovery. Instead of a monk, some think an untrained amateur scribe compiled the Devil's Bible, a miracle in itself, though it doesn't explain the centuries of havoc wreaked by the book. Next week, we'll examine the Codex itself to find the truth of the matter. We'll hear theories about the identity of the book's author and evidence as to whether the devil was actually involved. We'll even try to uncover what was on those missing pages. When it comes to the mysterious power of the Codex Gigas, you'll find that the devil is in the details. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Thursday with part two of the Codex Gigas. For more information on the Devil's Bible, amongst the many sources we used, we found the website of the National Library of Sweden extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. 
And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. 